Welcome to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and this is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. Month by month, we have different guests, we have different topics. Sometimes we also discuss Catholic culture, art, literature, music, architecture, and that's the topic this week. We're going to be discussing Christian art, Christian iconography, as it's called. My guest later in the program is going to be Matthew Alderman, a young church interior designer. He also designs church furniture and church fittings. He's also a well-established graphic artist and iconographer. He studied Catholic architecture and Catholic art across the world, and he'll be speaking to us knowledgeably about that. But first of all, I want to explore with you the whole question of whether Catholics can have images or not, whether Christians can have images or not. This is the question of whether we should be able to have statues, have paintings, have art, or whether that breaks actually this commandment in which the Lord says, uh, you shall have no other gods but me. And in the non-Catholic version, the second commandment is, you shall not make to yourself any graven image. There are some Christians, of course, who say to make statues, to have carvings, breaks one of the Ten Commandments. You shall not have any graven image, and therefore the Lord will punish you for having uh, such things in your churches. This is a debate which is called the iconoclasm debate. That's because it comes from the word icon, which is the Greek word for image. And down through the centuries, this is something which religious people have quarreled about and disputed. And the basic argument is that you must not make any image of gods or goddesses, that this is idolatry. You cannot have idols in your church. God is spirit. God is truth. God is light. He is beyond all imagery. And to make an image of any kind of God and have them in churches and temples is pagan. It goes against the Ten Commandments. Well, this debate blew up especially in the Catholic Church in the late 600s and early 700s in Greece. It was called the Iconoclasm Controversy. That's where the Byzantine emperor, Leo, fueled by crowds who were against images, began to break all of the statues and the imagery and destroy all of the Catholic imagery, saying that uh, you weren't allowed to have this in the Christian faith. The Western Christians, based in Rome, disputed this and came back and said, no, you can have images. The theologians came back, especially John of Damascus, and said, we don't actually worship these images. We worship the creator that is behind the images. Also, the argument came forward that because the creator himself took human form and took the image of a human, that it was possible, therefore, to make images. This is a very interesting theological argument, which said that, quoting St. Paul, that Jesus Christ is the image of the unseen God. And actually, because the New Testament's in Greek, uses the word icon. So Jesus Christ is the icon of the unseen God. Therefore, it became established and it became permitted to make icons or to make images in our worship. Now, of course, the argument that God was prohibiting all icons or all images altogether doesn't really hold up even from the Old Testament because when we read the instructions that God gave for Moses to build the tabernacle, he instructed that they should actually have great woven embroidered panels of of seven-foot-high angels over the Ark of the Covenant was to meant to be carved cherubim whose uh, wings curved up over the Ark of the Covenant, the famous box where the Ten Commandments were stored. So the theologians around the six, seven hundreds began to quote these and make arguments back and forth and eventually settled on the fact that it was possible for Christians to use images in their worship. Now, the images, therefore, are legitimately images of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is himself the image of the unseen God, and then images of his mother, because he took human flesh from her. And by extension, therefore, other images were permitted of the stories from the Gospels, and then also the images of the saints. Therefore, Catholics embrace imagery, statuary, carvings, icons, paintings, because it's through these particular images that we look to the image of the unseen God, which is Jesus Christ, who reveals to us God himself. 
We're not worshiping the images. We're worshiping and adoring Jesus Christ, God the Father, and by extension, the saints through whom he has done his work. Now, the other aspect of using Catholic art is very important because it also reminds us that we are physical beings. We have bodies. We have faces. We use things. We use things in the sacraments. We use oil, water, bread, wine. We have beautiful things, and we have practical things, and we have real physical things in our worship because God made us in the physical world with physical bodies. And the tendency to get away from the physical in worship tends to take us in the direction of a kind of Gnosticism or the kind of belief that the physical doesn't matter, the physical is unreal, what really matters is the spiritual realm. Catholics come back and say, no, God made us with real bodies, and God made us in a real world, in a physical world. Therefore, we can use all of these physical means for worship, and we can use all these physical means to get in touch with the Lord, who himself took on physical form by taking flesh of the Blessed Virgin Mary. In just a moment, I'm going to talk to Matthew Alderman, a young church furniture designer. This is Father Dwight Longenecker, and you're listening to More Christianity, the program where we draw together and explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. I want to take a moment and tell you about one of the books I've written, The Quest for the Creed. It's a Chestertonian romp through the Apostles' Creed, admitting that some of the style is a bit sort of like G.K. Chesterton. There's lots of wordplay, lots of new ways of looking at the Christian truths. The Quest for the Creed is on Amazon in good bookshops and also through my website, DwightLongenecker.com. And now, back to more Christianity. Welcome back to More Christianity. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and we're talking today about Catholic art. And my guest in this segment of the program is a young church furniture designer, iconographer, and a student of architecture, Matthew Alderman. Matthew, welcome to More Christianity. Thank you, Father. Thank you for having me here. In the first part of the program, Matthew, we were discussing the reasoning behind Catholic art, behind Christian art, saying that it's possible to have Catholic sculpture, Catholic icons, Catholic art, because Jesus himself is the image of the unseen God, that the invisible God, the God who is spirit and truth, actually took human form and took human flesh of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And because of this historical fact, we can therefore make images of him who is the image of God. This all fits together for you too, doesn't it, as a Catholic artist? Very much so. Something I think is central to my work as an artist, as someone who creates work for the sacred liturgy, is the idea that the redemption, uh, Christ's work on the cross, Christ becoming a man, has transformed matter. The sacraments, for example, matter is used to convey grace. I'm not entirely sure of the theological terminology there, but it becomes meaningful, it becomes potential of conveying significance, and God is no longer something that can be conveyed in diagrams. God is a person. God has a face. The force has a face, if you like. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> and, be- and because that's true, and God takes human form, we can therefore manipulate the material world and make things. To use um, J.R.R. Tolkien's term, when we make things, we become sub-creators. In other words, God himself is the creator. We're created in his image. And so part of that means that we're naturally creative. We need to be making things which are real and which have meaning. And this brings us to the subject of Catholic art. So, Matthew, you're a recent graduate of Notre Dame Architecture School. You've been traveling around the world, and already you're gaining a reputation for your excellent artwork and your creative designs for churches, which are done with an eye to the modern needs of worship, but also with a great eye to tradition, with bringing the traditions from the past into the present in a way which can be used in a very positive way liturgically and a way that's accessible for modern people. So uh, what I'd like to ask you, therefore, 
What about modern art? Can modern art connect with sacred art? Can modern art be used in any way in Catholic art? I've always said when asked that question that it is possible to baptize modern art, but it must have a very firm purpose of amendment, so to speak. And I'd like to make a distinction here. There is modern art. I consider anything done now is modern or contemporary. I mean, I may be working in the most traditional styles, but I am living today. I am taking in influences from both the past and the present. I am not engaging in an exercise of, of sort of historical reconstructionism. Right. However, there's modernistic art, which has already almost become a thing of a historical period. And that really goes back to the early 20th century, the idea that the artist has to cut himself off from the past, from learning from the past, and from any sort of meaningful dialogue with a larger Western tradition. It becomes very self-contained and very self-absorbed. So when you talk about modernistic art, we're talking about abstract art paintings with big dribbles of paint all over them or great big blocks of color, stuff which is cubistic or just has lots of zigzag designs and stuff. Is that what you're talking about when you talk about modernistic art? That's one form of it, certainly. It could be that. It could be something that's very abstract. I suppose you could include surrealism in there, but I think that's probably has something else in time. It is something that is very much about self-expression, an abstraction, and less of an interest in conveying meaning using a symbolic language or iconography which is intelligible to more than one person. The artist might have his own set of private symbols, but they're not going to make any sense to anyone. Right. Now, thinking of two particular modern artists, there's Salvador Dali, who in his later years especially, I believe, returned to the practice of his Catholic faith. Even if he wasn't totally faithful Catholic, he was interested in in, uh, Catholic themes. And, of course, he produced some famous paintings, the one of the crucifixion as viewed from the cosmos up above, which was actually based on a drawing of of St. John of the Cross, I believe. He also produced a painting of the Sea of Galilee and the fishing boats and also the Last Supper. And so there's a surrealist who's actually working in a traditional medium and a sacred medium. Are those kind of paintings sacred? The other question I had was a very famous abstract modern artist, Mark Rothko. He has paintings which are great big blocks of color, but there's a certain spirituality to them. In fact, some of them are actually filled the sacred space of a chapel, I believe down in Texas. And so there is abstract art, and I've gone to that chapel and sat there and have actually been quite moved by these mysterious big blocks of color. So can that kind of modern art, do you think, be sacred? I think one has to make a distinction between sacred art and liturgical art. Certainly, something like that may or may not be suitable from a church, from a purely rubrical standpoint, but I think it certainly can convey a spiritual significance. I have something of a loving relationship with Salvador Dali. I actually uh, really love some of his later works. There's one, it's a discovery of America by Christopher Columbus, which is this chock full of very Catholic, very Spanish symbolism, and also the example of the St. John of the Cross you mentioned. There definitely is something deep going on there, and it really, I think, can be meaningful. Is it suitable? Is it liturgical? Maybe, maybe not. There are some, for example, instances where he's maybe gone against certain canons that were set down in liturgical art. For instance, his image of Christ on the cross, you can't see the nails, which Mm -hmm. is problematic from a theological perspective. But is there a sense of spirituality there? Certainly. And is it sincere? I would like to believe so. And I think certainly the sincerity does read in the painting. Rothko is trickier just because it is abstract. There's nothing wrong with, with abstract art. It can give a certain expression or a certain mood. But it is inherently less capable of conveying meaning as a more symbolic or more iconographic work. Okay, so you would say that some abstract art can carry with it spiritual feelings, if you like, or a spiritual expression. 
but it can't really be used in church. It's not liturgical art. Likewise, there are certain paintings which might deal with religious subjects and which might have a devotional value, but again, this is distinct or different from the sort of art we would actually put into a church, and that's what you're calling liturgical art. Okay, so if we're talking about liturgical art as distinct from this other category of what we might call spiritual art or devotional art or even Christian art in a big category, liturgical art is a more confined and a smaller category Therefore, this is very interesting because we're talking about the whole range of Christian art. Listeners need to understand that there's different categories of this and different rules, therefore, and different uh, requirements for each one. This is Father Dwight Longenecker. You're listening to More Christianity, and uh, this is the program where we explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church. My guest today is Matthew Alderman, a graduate of Notre Dame Architecture School. He's becoming a well-known church furniture designer. He does interior church designs. He is very active working with various noted architects in developing designs of new church. And as it happens, is working, aren't you, Matthew, on the new designs of uh, Our Lady of the Rosary Church in Greenville, South Carolina? That is true. I very much enjoy the opportunity to work with your design team, with working with some of the furnishings and interior concepts. It's a, it's a beautiful design, and I'm glad to be part, a part of it. And we're glad that you're part of it. And uh, let's go back to liturgical art. Liturgical art, therefore, is the kind of art which we would actually put into our churches for the use of the faithful for their worship. Now, this is where it gets a little bit controversial. And as an artist, I'm really interested in your viewpoint. As a pastor, I get these catalogs from the church supply companies, and they're full of everything that you could possibly need in churches, from candles to chasubles. And, you know, you page through, and there are the pages of all the Catholic art, statues after statues of all different sizes, and they're mass-produced, and of all the favorite saints. Uh, and then you can get these beautiful hand-carved ones from Italy, which are full life-size and cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. They, too, though, are mass-produced. Some of them are beautiful to look at and beautifully produced. Others, I have to admit, you kind of look at them and go, oh, my goodness, you know, this is really tacky. Can't we do something more worthy? So my question to you as, as a designer, what do you do about all this? What do you do about churches where they take the cheap option? That's a very good question. There's a range there, certainly. I'll admit that there are some good mass-produced statues out there, and there are some that are quite horrid, really. And I have several friends who actually make sculptures for a living, and they despair that often the sculpture budget or the religious art budget is the last thing that gets included when designing a project. It's an afterthought. Obviously, of course, there are some parishes that are not going to be able to afford everything hand-carved, everything custom, everything original. At least setting aside something of an art budget is certainly a start. The other thing is also understanding not everything is going to get furnished at once. Don't rush the last minute just because you have a couple of empty niches to fill them with some horrible plaster statues. Let's say that we want to get a new statue of St. Therese of Lisieux, the little flower, and we want one that's five foot tall, and we're shopping around. Oh, there's one that's been made out of molded plaster, and someone has spray-painted it, and it's available for $600, we'll say. Oh, and over here's one which is hand-carved and painted by hand and decorated with gold leaf. It cost $10,000. Why shouldn't we just buy the cheaper one? I'll start with the pragmatic answer. In 10 or 15 years, it's going to show its age. And also, the other thing is that you can tell the difference between a hand-carved statue and one that's been essentially mass-produced. It just looks bad. It smacks of a sort of um, stop-gap approach to religious art. Uh, and I think on a more spiritual level, when you're looking at that, you're thinking, you know, you think to yourself, well, are we really doing our best for God? And 
especially to think about the people who come to church, they're of all ages, all class backgrounds. Not all of them can go back to, comfy, to their comfy homes. The beauty of the church is for them, it's for everyone. And so I think in some ways, it's a matter of respect to God, and it's a matter of respect to the parishioners as well. Isn't there an element also in which the hand-carved piece of art, there's a sense of reality to it which and depth in which the artist has actually uh, used his hands and his time to actually carve this natural piece of wood or stone to create this image. There's a kind of imperceptible and yet tangible depth to it all which a mass-produced popped-out-of-a-mold statue doesn't have. Or am I just being kind of romantic and nostalgic about all that? I think that's very true. It's, it is possible to get overly romantic about the production process. We can romanticize, for example, unduly the structure of a building, because unfortunately no one is going to be building stone vaults in this day and age, but we can certainly make it hard to make it feel as real as possible. But mm-hmm. I think when you get down to individual liturgical appurtenances, there is a difference. Whether it's, say, the quantified or is, is subjective, I can't say, but I've certainly felt it, and I think you can really see it even coming a mile off, so to speak. I can't help telling a story of when I was talking to a, an artist who actually did produce things by hand, and I asked him the same question. You know, why not just produce something which is mass-produced and which is a tenth of the price? And he just smiled and said, let's say that you were engaged to the love of your life, and you're going to get married and you were going to buy her an engagement ring, and off you went to the jeweler's shop, and the jeweler put out before you a real diamond for $3,000 or a little paste jewel which costs 50 cents and they looked the same to the untrained eye, he said, how would your girlfriend feel if you said, let's just get the cheaper one, my dear? (laughs) And That's absolutely perfect. That's absolutely perfect. It's true. It's true. And what are we saying about our devotion to the Lord, therefore, when we say, ah, Jesus can have the cheap imitation? What do you say to the person who who says, you want to spend all this money, Father, on $10,000 for a statue and $100,000 for stained glass windows? You should give the money to the poor. What's your answer about that one? Well, the real scriptural money quote, I think, comes where Mary's sister Martha washes the feet of Christ with her hair and anoints them, and Judas pitches a fit because the ointment she is using could have been sold and given to the poor, and our Lord chastises and tells him that that this was done out of Mary's devotion. The fact that it's Judas, the the guy who was in charge of the Apostles' pocketbook, speaking up about that and saying those exact same words is very telling. However, if you're looking for less of a gotcha sort of answer, I think it's interesting to look at the instructions given to Moses in the building of the tabernacle, the tent of the presence that the Ark of the Covenant was stored in, and also the temple that was built um, by Solomon. In the Old Testament, there's all these descriptions of gold and images of palm branches carved in the wall and, and a very rich symbolic program. You think to yourself, this all predates Christ coming. So if we were able to make that amount of beauty for God's dwelling place on earth, which only was in the temple at the time, how much more is that the truth when now God, as the Blessed Sacrament, resides in every Catholic church in Christendom? Every church is now, in some ways, as glorious and as significant as the temple in Jerusalem was. You're listening to more Christianity. This is Father Dwight Longenecker. We explore the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church on this program. Matthew, the other question I had for you is this. When we talk about Catholic art, an icon or a statue, again, a statue of St. Therese of Lisieux, it has to somehow portray her as a real person, a young woman who died at the age of 24. In fact, it has to have an element of portraiture to it as well, because we know what she looked like. We had photographs of her. 
On the other hand, the sacred art has to convey something supernatural, that she's a grace-filled person, that she has achieved perfection by God's grace, that she somehow transcends and is greater than her natural condition. How does an artist attempt to do that, and what are the problems? Fortunately, in our Western tradition, there's a certain degree, mind you, of artistic freedom. We're not as locked into certain canons as, say, the Byzantine churches are. And their traditions are, of course, I think, equally legitimate, but they're of their own, connected with their liturgy. In our case, I think it's striking a balance between excessive realism and excessive stylization. Obviously, I think some of the best models of that, I think, come in the late Middle Ages and the early Renaissance. People like Fra Angelico, a man who is, in fact, almost a saint, or some of the other early Florentine masters, or even, for example, um, Jan van Eyck, there is this understanding that we're trying to portray some degree of the realism of the world, but at the same time, that sense of the transcendent of heavenly glory has not been lost. For example, a statue of St. Peter has to follow certain canons. We may not know quite as much about his appearance as, say, St. Therese, but there are certain iconographic traditions he's usually shown with you know, the short white beard and I think a little more hair than maybe St. Paul does. So there is some realism in the face, but at the same time, he's shown wearing blue and gold vestments. Obviously, he didn't wander around Palestine in these perfectly pressed robes. It would have probably been kind of dirty and grubby and probably broken down. But the way he's depicted in Christian art, he's shown recognizably himself, but at the same time glorified. You know, we often speak of someone who is in Christ has become more fully himself. His personality doesn't go away. Likewise, each of the saints in heaven retains their own uniqueness, but is transfigured and rendered more glorious. This question of how to communicate it is really interesting. I I like your idea of St. Peter, who's wearing splendid blue and gold robes when he was actually a fisherman in Galilee. You're saying the artist is trying to say, yes, he was the fisherman in Galilee, but he's been transfigured into the great St. Peter. So that's the task of truly Catholic art. And is the criteria you'd use for judgment to see whether these two are balanced properly? A lot of it also depends on the context of the work, too. I mean, for instance, you're talking about facial features. That's that's very interesting. And I think there's a glorious specificity in Catholic art. We have room for diversity, but it's handled in a different way. Rather than sort of melting everything down, look at Our Lady of Guadalupe, who was undoubtedly Aztec and Mexican air features, or, you know, an English Madonna who was very clearly, you know, blonde and blue-eyed. They certainly don't lose their sense of being connected with a place or particular people, but at the same time, once again, they're very transcendent. There's not this sort of let's take this particular feature from this particular group of people, which results in kind of a creepy figure. So I think a lot of it also comes down to who is going to be using this to pray with. One of the things I've discovered also in becoming a Catholic is how very often my affection or my attraction or my love of a particular image, especially a devotional image, begins to transcend and overcome my particular matters of taste. If you're not careful, you can have all of your own devotional life determined by what really secularists are calling good taste. Good taste is determined by, oh, these are the paintings and the sculptures we have decided are the best because we put them in our art history books and we put them in our galleries and these are therefore the ones you should like the best. Well, there's one way in which you can appreciate it as art and great art, but on the other hand, there is a natural human affection which I find takes place, which I'm rather delighted by or rather pleased with. For instance, I'm very fond now of a very ordinary image of the infant of Prague, an image of the baby Jesus dressed in all these robes, which quite honestly sometimes are a little bit outlandish. But I can see past all of that. 
I'm supposed to pray through this icon and see that it means more than the actual image itself. This is the master of all things, the creator of all things, who humbles himself to be born of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So there's also this balance, isn't there, Matthew, between what my heart says in my love for the Lord, what my heart says in in worship, being part of the great Catholic tradition, and what my head says about matters of taste and matters of what's better or worse in, in those terms. Oh, undoubtedly, I think. And it is something that I sometimes have to fight. Is like when I am in a church, I, sometimes the beauty of it can aid in my prayer. Sometimes it can be a distraction if I start thinking about it from an art historical perspective. And if it's a particularly ugly church, I can also be distracting as well. But at the same time, it is important to get back to what what is the meaning of this image? What is trying to be said to us? Like you're saying about the infinite Prague. Same way, I have a great fondness for statues of the Virgin Mary that have been dressed in beautiful robes, and that can seem to a snide person coming from a secular perspective to seem kind of childish or childlike, but at the same time, this is an image which speaks of the glory of Mary, that people want to be able to give gifts to Our Lady through it, through, you know, through the vesture, through the various ex-votos and so forth. Sometimes one has to sort of take off one's critic's hat, so to speak. I've been talking to Matthew Alderman, a Notre Dame grad and an increasingly well-known church artist and church interior designer. You can visit his website at MatthewAlderman.com. Get in touch with him. If you're redesigning a church, if you're renovating a church, if you're trying to do the interiors and the design of a new church, he's a great artist. Get in touch with him at MatthewAlderman.com. I want to just draw things to a close by saying something I'm sure you'll agree with, that all of the art, all of the architecture, all of the statuary, the imagery, if it draws its attention to itself, either because it's very, very excellent or even because it's very, very awful, in a way it misses the point because all of the art in our churches is there to give glory to God. It's there to direct our attention to Him. It's there to draw us into His beauty and to worship Him in the beauty of holiness. That's what it's for. And in that respect, it has a subordinate purpose. It's there for something greater than itself. And that in itself is a lesson to each one of us, that we are God's workmanship, as St. Paul says. We are his works of art, that he has made us to give him the glory. He's made us also to live for something greater than ourselves. My guest today is Matthew Alderman. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker, and you've been listening to More Christianity. Matthew, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Father. It's been a pleasure. More Christianity explores the fullness of the Christian faith in the Catholic Church and comes to you from the WCKI studios in upstate South Carolina. Tune in every week for Father Dwight Longenecker's perspectives on Catholic culture, social issues, saints, converts, and the supernatural aspects of the Catholic faith. For more about Father Longenecker's work, his website is dwightlongenecker.com. Why not connect with Father Longenecker every day? through his popular blog, Standing on My Head. Why the weird title? Because G.K. Chesterton said, a scene is most often more clearly seen when it is seen upside down. In Standing on My Head, Father Longenecker writes on current issues, blogs about the faith, and entertains with his wacky alter egos, inspiring us to stand firm in our Catholic faith, a faith which stands the world on its head.